You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. of season six. I am super excited today to be joined today by an incredible colleague and mentor, Dr. Robert Lucero. Dr. Lucero is an Associate Dean of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, a full professor. Dr. Lucero is also the inaugural Adrian H. Mosley Endowed Chair in Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the UCLA School of Nursing and maintains a courtesy faculty appointment at the University of Florida College of Nursing. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing and co-chair of the American Medical Informatics Association's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. As the Associate Dean of EDI, he is the Chief Diversity Officer representing the School of Nursing at UCLA, as well as within the University of California system. He is responsible for leading the school in their vision to be a beacon of creating innovative, impactful, and sustainable individual and organizational strategies and solutions that promote a diverse, equitable, and respectful environment for faculty, staff, students, alumni, and community partners through interdisciplinary research, scholarship, clinical care, and community engagement. As a scientist, Dr. Lucero's program of research focuses on improved health outcomes of vulnerable populations using innovative health system and informatics approaches. Two prominent themes of his work are enhancing the equity of care for hospitalized older adults and improving self-management of chronic health conditions among Hispanic, African-American, and LGBTQ plus populations. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lucera. Thank you, Ali. Fantastic to have you here. Uh, I'll start with the question that I always start with, with all my guests, is how did you get started in the world of nursing? Uh, by luck, I think. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not a luck believer, as most people who know me. Um, it was by uh, what I like to say, ordered chance. Um, and so I, um, I actually had intended going into um, primary school education. And it just so happened I was uh, hanging out with my cousin and one of his buddies uh, in between classes one day at Arizona Western College. Uh, and we started talking about what, uh, what we were studying and what our degree major uh, was at the time. And um, this guy, it, it turns out that his dad was the CEO of the hospital in Yuma, Arizona, the one hospital, the same one hospital that exists there some 25 <laughs> years later. And he just started sharing how he was in nursing school. And I was like, what is that? And what is that all about? And uh, so he gave me the lowdown and 
I think a month later, I applied for the program. This was like in the spring, like of, of that year. And by March or April, so a few months later, I knew I was going to nursing school. So that's how I landed in nursing. I knew it was a good paying job. We hear that a lot. Right? <laughs> I, yeah. I do. I do. Uh, it's, it's strange you mentioned. I mean, it's not strange anymore. I think um, for so many years, like I've always heard from from individuals like, oh, nursing is a calling. People know it from when they're little or they're, you know, uh, and it is, I think it is a calling, but so many people I speak to, and especially through the podcast, I've heard that like firsthand from so many people that nursing was not the first choice. They had other plans and nursing just came to be. Very few of my guests have actually said, I've known, I've known it since I was a kid that I was going to be a nurse. So it's, it's not, it's no longer strange that I hear people's first, you know, just like myself, I was going to go into PA school uh, and then things happen. Same thing. A friend of mine uh, talked to me and said, Hey, what do you think? What about nursing? I'm like, let me look into it. And here I am. <laughs> so, yeah. Very like, cool. For me, it wasn't even a, a, fir- a second, a, a, a hundredth choice. It was like no choice. It, it was just, I, I heard this guy talking about how he was going to be done in two years and have a good paying job. And I was like, okay, sign me up because this whole experience of being derailed from what I thought I was going to do, which was become a civil engineer. I just thought, you know, let me get out of this experience of not to disparage community colleges. Community colleges are amazing. I'm a huge proponent of community colleges. But, you know, when when you're in your, you know, late teens, early 20s, um, and things aren't going your way, you kind of have a different perspective. And I was like, I just want a job and then I'll figure it out after that. A good paying job. Right. So yeah, it was not a calling. It was not a choice. It was just very practical and concrete for me. I I knew nothing about what nursing was. I just knew two years done, good paying job. So are you a graduate of an associate's degree program? Or, or did you did you transfer into uh, a... so I finished my associates in applied science and then okay in Arizona that's what you need well at least that needed to <clears throat> qualify for your license so yeah okay I graduated from an associate degree program that's fantastic um so how was it at, at the time you went to school how was get it how was it for you to get into since yeah, nursing was not on your radar at the time and you decided to go. How was it going into the nursing profession for you? Do you mean after graduation? Uh, well, during school and then graduating afterwards, yeah. Well, I mean, I love to tell the story that, you know, I was basically told ship, shape up or ship out in nursing school. Uh, and <laughs> If they could only see you now. I was, I was told... You'd be an amazing nurse. I've seen you with the patients, but your care plans suck. (laughs) So yeah, that was my experience in nursing school. And I thought, well, I can't fail this. I mean, you know, going into it, there was the whole thing, which still exists, you know, the waiting list. And um, when I got into nursing school two months after application, I was like, what waiting list were they talking about? How is that possible? But that transition from nursing school to practice was one, again, I had no conception of what it really meant to be a nurse. Mm. It really means to be, at least the conception that I have of it now. 
And at the time when I was finishing my training, my associate's degree training, I was a behavioral health tech in a freestanding acute care um, psychiatric unit. But I, and, and it was intriguing to me, but it wasn't really what I found fun. So I have this philosophy. If you're not having fun at work, find a new job. Right. Especially as a nurse. Um, and so um, what I did find fun, and then of course I did the, well, you got to apply to a med surge. This was 25 years ago. Keep in mind, a little bit more than 25 years ago. You've got to apply to a med surge unit. And then the other thing I thought found kind of interesting was just the whole rehab facility. I don't know. I don't remember why at the time. I just thought, you know, it just seems, I, I think it was more because they didn't have like that shift work, right? It was a different right. kind of shift work. And so it was more like five days a week, nine to five type thing, as I recall. But the place where I found like the most joy when I went to school was labor and delivery. So I thought, got to apply there. That's like, if I'm going to have to work, I'm going to work there. And as a male nurse, it's not something you hear too often. Yeah, no. And so, and even still. And so, and even still. Um, yeah. And so I, you know, I was doing my occupational uh, behavioral, rather uh, tech job and got licensed, transitioned to a nurse on that unit and was waiting to hear about the other options. And so um, I got a call and they said, we want you to, we'd like to offer you a job in labor and delivery. And I was like, cool beans. I overlapped a little bit between the psych mental health and the labor and delivery and realized that I needed to focus on the labor and delivery um, to really be good at it. So I stopped that, that other job and focused on the labor and delivery. I mean, I was really, I don't know how things happen so much for new nurses now, but at the time, the hospital, at least the labor and delivery unit, had a very structured preceptorship. And so we did 12 weeks of in-class learning everything they thought we needed to know about from the unit structure to the equipment on the unit to the, and then a lot of didactic learning on labor and delivery, you know, in terms of reading the fetal monitor and uterine contraction tracing and how to respond. And, and then of course, all of the quote unquote, high tech equipment that's used in labor and delivery. And then after that, we had a one-on-one -on, -one on the unit. So we would get scheduled with our, our preceptor when they worked. And that lasted, well, we were told it could last up to 12 weeks. And so if you were like, if your preceptor thought you were done sooner than that, then you could, you didn't have to go the full 12 weeks with your preceptor and you could start, you know, working your own schedule. So, so yeah, all of that with an associate degree. That's amazing. So what made you, uh, obviously you went on with your higher education. What made you want to go to that next step and go to your bachelor's and so on? Well, I wish I could say that the thing that motivated me to go back to get more schooling again was a intentional, thoughtful process, <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't. 
Um, as you've come to know me, Ali, and uh, my friends and colleagues know me, I'm a I'm a God believer. Uh, that's why I say order chance. I don't think anything happens just by random uh, nothing, uh, just complete randomness. And I, you know, I had not been living at my parent. I so when I finished my associate degree program. Shortly after that, I moved out of my parents' house. You know, I'm grateful for for them for supporting me in that, you know, that part of my journey. And um, I had been working full time, maybe for about a year, maybe less than a year, and living in my own place. And I would go over to my parents' house to to visit and get a free meal, of course. Um, of course. And and so <laughs> they. Um, and I had not received any postage like at their house that my mom or dad would just give me and say, oh, look, this came in the mail. Tell them to stop sending stuff to the house. Right. That had stopped a while back. And one day I went to the house and my dad was like, hey, look, this thing came for you in the mail. And it turned out it was a piece of uh, postage from Arizona State University soliciting applicants for their RN to MSN program. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. You can go from an associate's degree to a master's. Wow, how do you do that, right? Um, and so I read about it and it was pretty clear in there how it happens or how it happened then. And um, I thought, oh, there's no chance because I'm not a grades guy. I'm a learner guy. And I just talk <laughs> about learning what I need to learn. The grades are the grades, right? And so... I called them up and I just wanted to talk to them about the whole grades thing. And they said, don't worry about it because when we evaluate your uh, transcript, um, we're only concerned about math and science. And I thought, perfect, math and science, I'm in. <laughs> and so they said, send us your transcript, just an unofficial copy, and we'll review it, and we'll we'll let you know as soon as we, we're done with that. It wasn't very long after I mailed it to them that um, they said, yeah, you have the GPA, that, that uh, the minimum GPA based on your math and science. Please submit your application. And so that's how it happened. Wow. And that's awesome. how I, another chance thing. And what's crazy is every time, every time along the journey of me getting more educated, um, it was very quick. It was super quick. So in that, in that instance, I applied in the fall and by January, I was already living in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Like wow. months later. Yeah, it was a very quick thing. turnaround. I don't think it happens that fast anymore for any of these school. <laughs> so uh, your your master's degree how did you choose what you're going what area of specialty you're going to step into okay the the listeners are going to think man he's got way too many long stories but they're like sort of they're like <laughs> these complex experiences i had created this whole plan because i loved being a labor and delivery nurse i loved the idea so in yuma at the time it was the, the hospital labor and delivery uh, experience for nurses was a, a what we call a level two. And so we only took care of women 
who were at least 32 weeks gestation. If they came in earlier through our labor triage, we would transport them to Phoenix. It very much was a community hospital where the physician, there was no such thing as an attending. Um, the physicians would come and do their rounds in the morning. And then the rest of the day, it was pretty much just, it was all nursing. It was all nursing management. Unless there was, you know, a, a reason for concern. And then you'd pick up the phone and, you know, or pay, oh, back in the day when we would page physicians. I don't even know if that exists anymore. Anyway, um, you know, I feel like I'm dating myself, but that really wasn't long ago. Um, well, Technology maybe, has moved very Maybe it was. Away. Maybe a quarter of a century is a long time. Um, but anyway, so the nurses were managing the laboring experience in large part unless there was a reason for concern. We had a lot of standing orders, even though the physicians weren't there. In Yuma, um, at the time, at least 50%, if not more, of all vaginal births were attended by certified nurse midwives. Mm. I just was like, man, I wanna be a midwife. I just wanna, I wanna be the person running the show, right? Makes sense. And so, my master plan was, I'm going to go to Arizona State. I'm going to get a master's degree in nursing with an emphasis in family practice. It's going to be a family practice APRN. Right. Because I had already done the homework that I could go back to Yuma, work in an OBGYN's office, do women's health, and do a postmaster certificate in midwifery through USC. And the University of Southern California at the time had a distance learning program where you could basically just do all of your clinical experience and everything in your hometown. And they would come to your hometown and do your, I guess, checklist. I don't know. Um, right. And, and, you know, make sure that you were competent. And so um, that was the master plan, but that's not what happened, clearly. I, I fell in love with nursing theory and the idea of theory as the basis for everything that we do as nurses. And I pivoted from being a family nurse practitioner to focusing on community health as a community health nurse. And at the time at Arizona State, they had a master's of science and a master's in public health. And so I, and I, I asked, what does that mean? And what would it mean in terms of graduation? And they said, a semester longer. I said, well, shoot, I've got to be here four years. What's four and a half? So, <laughs> so you ended up with your uh, master's in public health and an MSN. That's right. A master's so of science. You, you, you did a dual, dual degree. Dual degree. I did a triple degree, actually, right? Because I did the well, your bachelor's, I got the bachelor's like in a year and a half. And then I did the master's of science and nursing and the master's. And MPA. Yeah. Now I see a lot of nurses, uh, not a lot, uh, actually uh, quite a few of the guests I've had on the show with a master's in public health. How do you think uh, that content benefits you now as a nurse scientist or in your career overall? Because I've dabbled with that in my head several times, just having to sort of pull the trigger on it. But what do you? Th how do you think that's changed uh, how you practice or how you view 
uh, your practice? So I don't know that it, so it, it does two things. It does exactly what you said. It, it helps me, you know, it gives me a different multiple lenses to think about the human experience of health and illness on a continuum. And then it also helps me understand other professions, uh, right. namely the profession we mostly collaborate with, which is uh, medicine. You know, a master's in public health, its focus is really on the disease model, um, which is that epidemic, and more specifically, the epidemiological model of um, host vector um, and um, and illness, right? And so uh, host vector and environment, excuse me. Um, and so, you know, nursing is not about illness, right? Our, our, one could argue that our, you know, our model is on health, right? Um, and so um, that epi model really focuses on the vector as the thing you know, causing illness, uh, and there is no health in that model. So it it helps me um, consider how I, as a nurse, need to respond, right, based on um, the management of health and the promotion of health um, in a different context right mm, so right. people can be healthy right with chronic illness so-called yes. chronic illness right i don't call it chronic illness but you're asking me how does this all come together i consider it just a chronic condition right so right. Um, if it's not anything that we're going to cure then why would we call it illness it's just there it's just part of who we are it's just part of our human you, you live with it right that's right. it Exactly. So the master's in public health, the master in public health is um, is a helpful degree, I think, in terms of thinking about reality in a different way. Um, what I recommend it for nurses, uh, only if you're not getting a master's in community health. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Only because, well, because if you think about our other master's degrees, right, they're very clinically focused. Um, right. I mean, I would even argue if you're getting a master's degree in a clinical specialty, you're already getting the master's in public health in some way, because it's so mm -hmm. illness focused. Right, right. It's very true. Yeah. Very so. true. All right. Well, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I have, um, as you went, uh, went through your process of your professional development, uh, at some point you decide you're going to do your doctoral degree. So how did that come about? And during any of your processes of going from going through your professional development process, did you have anybody that you were able to consult with or a mentor throughout the process that you that you reached out to just from my own perspective. And one, one of the reasons I created this whole RN mentor podcast was I had difficulty as somebody who was post-military coming into the civilian sector. I always had difficulty finding mentors. Um, uh, so did you have anybody like that 
um, in your career process and into your PhD program? So I would say to anybody out there who doesn't have a mentor, um, the sign of a good mentor is someone identifying something in you and encouraging you to build that in yourself. So I have amazing mentors who have become amazing colleagues and amazing friends. Uh, sometimes it's kind of awkward thinking back and I'm going to call out some names here because uh, I think that there's value in in names. Um, identifying people who really matter to me. Uh, so Dr. Jacqueline McGrath, uh, she was the first person who saw something in me uh, that I didn't even know was there. And this was back at Arizona State University. Uh, and she is now a friend um, and mentor and colleague. She's at uh, UT Health Sciences San Antonio. Uh, and it was in my first course that I took at Arizona State University, nursing course, because I had other courses I had to take. I, <clears throat> it was the end of class, first day of class, and she said, she comes up to me and she says, send me an email because I really need, I, I'd really like to talk to you about something. Mm. I was like, okay, I'm in trouble already. And it's the first day of class. <laughs> hey, what? <laughs> And so I sent her the email, long story short, she identified in me that I should go get a PhD and she even named where I should go, which was her alma, which is her alma mater as well, you know? And, um, and so I just toyed around with the idea because she wouldn't let me forget about it the whole time I was at Arizona State. So wow. I think, first of all, for, for people who are coming up uh, in nursing, that if someone calls out something in you, really explore that in yourself, uh, the idea, because you, you might be surprised where that takes you. Um, I think sometimes we have a tendency as humans to not trust what others think about us and think that we have to figure it out for ourselves. So this is interesting because I tell people I have trust issues. <laughs> maybe, I maybe I don't after all. Because <laughs> I really trusted them. Uh, the other person I want to put a shout out for her too is Dr. Karen Souza. She's at the University of Colorado uh, in Denver. Uh, and she was my master uh, thesis mentor, advisor, uh, who also took a, a huge... Um, interest in me and invested a lot of time in me uh, to get me uh, to, to go get that PhD. And then the last, yeah. just one other person, okay? Because these are really important people in my life. I mean, without, yeah, them, absolutely. without them, I would have never gotten a PhD is Dr. Julie Flory, uh, also at Arizona uh, State University, who also took time to just sit down with me and it was in my conversation with her that I ultimately realized it was uh, the right thing to do. Because for me, you know, being in school all that time, getting those multiple degrees, I was struggling with this idea of, you know, is experience more valuable than knowledge or vice versa, right? Right. And um, 
it was in that one conversation that it just all clicked for me. And I was like, okay, here's another example of the fast turnaround. I applied in November and by January, I knew that summer I'd be driving to the East Coast to work on my PhD. This was wow. the, this was 2003, 2004. For those individuals that don't have somebody that has reached out to them or tapped them on the shoulder. How, how about those individuals that are listening right now? What would you say to them in order for them to find a mentor? Well, you got to take a risk, first of all. I'm trying to think back on, have I ever had to take a risk on uh, identifying a mentor? And I, I think the answer to that is yes. I think that when I, you know, when I finished my PhD at Penn, um, the responsibility of finding a postdoc uh, was laid squarely on me. And I'm grateful to another person who I also see as a mentor and friend, Dr. Jeannie Simiati, who's at um, Emory uh, University in Atlanta, who said, Robert, you should think about going to Columbia why don't you talk to reach out to this person? And so I did. I reached out to Dr. Uh, Suzanne Bakken at Columbia University, who is also a mentor. And at the time, I don't think Columbia was the sense that I got. They weren't real sure what to do with me because my interests were in like nursing data, uh, nursing generated data. Which, was, which is very much informatics, uh, but I was being trained as a health services researcher at the University of Pennsylvania. It became this thing of, let's just have Robert meet with a bunch of people at Columbia, right? And But ultimately they did figure out what to do with me. And so that was a big risk for me because I it was a whole new experience for me because up until that point, it was kind of like people seeing something in me, wanting to shepherd me. And this time it was more like, okay, I got to go out there. I mean, I'm grateful that they were interested in me, right? Because if right. they had to at least be interested in me for me to take that risk. You know, the, the biggest risk in all of that was deciding to do a postdoc in health informatics and not, not staying focused on health services research. But, you know, I, I'm a real believer in you have to really be in touch with yourself and listen and observe. I mean, you have to use your nursing skills, that right. knowledge, those different ways right. of knowing. Just so happens, I already mentioned her name, Dr. Suzanne Bakken at Columbia University, who is also is a very good mentor of mine really has helped me with my science tremendously. Uh, she, we were sitting down and the first thing I did was I pulled out this shiny maroon folder with the great seal of Arizona. She looked at the folder. This is when we first sat down to get our, my day started. I drove, I took the train up from Philadelphia to New York City for this day experience to consider this postdoc at Columbia. And she looks at the folder and she says, you know, that's my alma mater. I had no idea that she went to Arizona State University to get her BSN. So, you know, it's, but 
the world of nursing, while there's many of us for sure, right? Over 4 million right. of us in this country, uh, in some respects is really small. And so, um, it is. and so, yeah, so that, that was a big risk for me. So I think for people who need, who are seeking out mentoring, I tell my new people who I get newly engaged with, who are assigned to me as students or as um, new faculty that we're entering a relationship of advice, right? right? Mentoring is something that's in my experience much more profound than someone coming to my office and saying, hey, what do you think about this? And me giving them my advice, right? Right. Uh, mentoring is uh, an experience of building relationship and trust and Part of that trust is building confidence. And what I mean by that is that if I have confidence in this mentor, it's more likely than not that I will follow their advice. Right. You have to know where that individual is coming from and get a feel that they are genuinely invested in you, right? Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, and so I don't think I answered the question about how does a, a, a person find a mentor other than to say, I don't know what that secret ingredient is, right? Right. Um, because my experience has been one of ordered chance. And one time in my career where I had to take a risk. Right. Right. So none of it was intentional, in other words. Right. right. So I don't know that I'm the best person to <laughs> ask that question of, but I will say, based on my experience as a mentor, that if I today, right, if I were like to switch roles, right, looking for a mentor, that I would want to find someone who I genuinely think I could like. I think that's really important, like just on a very human level. And knowing what I know now, realize, based on my experience, that everybody has agendas and that this relationship, this mentoring relationship, is not just about me. But there's got to be something that I can give to them, not just what I can get out of them. Yeah. I agree. You hit on a, on a key point of risk, uh, but there's risk involved because it is a relationship and you all always have that chance of the relationship not working or being rejected in that relationship of somebody not having time for you, which I always appreciate when somebody says, I just, I, my plate is full and I want somebody who's going to be able to give me that time. And I appreciate. Uh, so, yeah. So, but I think you hit on a really key point is that risk factor that you're like you enter into any relationship, there's a, there is risk involved. Uh, and just being okay with taking that risk because at the end of the day, hopefully you'll match with someone who is, uh, who is generally invested in you and, um, and help you along the process. Cause I think that's key. So yes. Thank well, you. then I also think that, you know, like if I could do it all over again, I mean, I don't know that I would do it differently, but if I were out there looking for a mentor, I would encourage anyone whatever stage of development they are in their adult experience to go prepared, go yeah. prepared to tell them what you are looking for, right? Yes. What is your agenda? 
right? Right. You see something in this person that you think they can help you with. Well, you need to be clear about what that thing is that you want help with. Right. And so this makes me, as I'm saying this out loud, it makes me think about uh, Dr. Kristen Shear, who was who recently graduated from the University of Florida College of Nursing, uh, who I had the privilege of advising and I would say now mentoring as a doctoral student. She is now, oh, I hope I get this right, Kristen. She is now a Lieutenant Colonel in the Army. And she uh, was selected as one of two nurses back in whatever year that was, about three or four years ago, to get her PhD as her service duty. And so she had many choices and she found me and she was very clear. This is what I need. This is what I want to do. And I need to do it in three years. And that's what I would encourage people to do, you know, uh, depending on where you're at in your stage of development as a nurse, right? You're just getting started. If you're going for your master's, whatever it is, right? Have a plan because I take seriously and I want all nurses to take seriously, right? That this is a career that we have. And so if you're advancing in your education or whatever phase of your career, uh, of your journey rather as a nurse, that you think about it as part of a bigger framework of what your goal is for your career. I want to switch topics real quick uh, and and talk about your work in the world of EDI, because as we mentioned in the beginning uh, of the podcast, in your intro, you have you wear a lot of hats in EDI. Uh, how did you decide this? You're going to fall into this line of work, and uh, we'll start. Well, let's start from there. How did you decide you're going to uh, do this type of work? Life always brings uh, interesting twists and turns, and. As you mentioned, I I still maintain a courtesy appointment at uh, the University of Florida College of Nursing, which is an amazing organization. And I started there back in 2015 and then came to UCLA uh, in 2021. During that journey, uh, COVID happened. Um, But right before COVID, my mother had decided to come and live with me the year before COVID. And in that short period of time, we lost my mother and I turned 50 years old and life happens, you know, Mm -hmm. with all of that. I mean, she died the September before COVID became official. And so I was just left wondering, okay. Oh, and I was going up for promotion at the University of Florida. I just started thinking about, you know, are there other possibilities out there for me if I'm going up for promotion to full professor? And I just started looking around and looking around intentional. This was the first time in my nursing career that I was about to make an intentional choice about what the next step would be for me. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to explore other opportunities, it's got to be on the West Coast because I think it's time to go back home. So I moved out to the East Coast summer of 2004. So we're talking about 2020. I just knew it was time. It was time for me to come back to the West Coast. All of my family is on the West Coast. 
and I, I was looking for opportunities and there were a few opportunities and one of them happened to be uh, UCLA and they had this position for associate dean for EDI. Well, at the time it was associate dean for DEI. We've re, re, right. re, uh, retitled it, you know, to be congruent with uh, the campus leadership um, on EDI. I saw this position um, my passion, as you mentioned in my introduction, um, is thinking about how we improve health for vulnerable populations and just became curious about a lot of different things. You know, at this point, we had already, we were dealing squarely with the issues around race and gender discrimination and wondering about my place in all of that uh, as a white indigenous Mexican-American male nurse and thinking about what, what could I do as a leader of nursing, right? Um, I tell my students, once you get your PhD, you're like automatically bestowed in some way role of leader. Now, that doesn't mean you are a leader. That just means that you you might be thought of one as one. And what are you going to do? It's a presumptive. That? Yeah. What are you going to do with that? And so I, you know, I've always taken that very seriously, thinking about the future for myself as a leader in nursing. And I just thought, you know, this could be interesting. It could be, you know, my foot into a higher education administrative role. And I could really do something with this because my predecessor had already set up an amazing structure at UCLA for me to build upon and become a lot more action oriented in terms of diversifying the faculty at UCLA because the UC system has amazing resources for the public to easily find out what that looks like and right. their students as well. And so I just went for it. Here I am. Uh, any of your own personal experiences in the profession, do you think influenced you in taking on a role like this? So there's a lot of things, right? So I gave, <laughs> so I gave you my brief positionality statement based on race, ethnicity, and gender, um, how I self-identify in those spaces. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things, right? I mean, do you want me to tell you all of them? <laughs> no, no, no. I just, just, wanted to, just wanted to know, if, do you, did you have experiences throughout your profession? Because I, I'm, I'm an Iranian man uh, in a predominantly female profession, and I've had my share of, and I'm, you know, I, I easily pass as white, even though culturally I don't consider myself white, uh, just because of my background and my culture and how I grew up. Uh, I don't always, I, I don't always find myself fitting in into the white, and I'm air quoting here, the uh, uh, ideas. Uh, but but from from my perspective, I've had I've had leaders that I've had in my that have been um, very clear as to how they feel about a male individual being in the profession of nursing. Uh, and they haven't always been positive. So uh, did you did you face some of those along the way? that may have said, you know what, I can really bring my own experience uh, from, 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 a, 
from your own experiences that how you wanted certain things changed? I guess that's where I'm coming from. So, so I don't know if it matters as much anymore today because I haven't had a, 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 this happen to me in some time. Uh, maybe it's because I'm aging and I'm my identity is more uh, less confusing to individuals. But uh, of course, they can go to the web, right, and find me. And see <laughs> what I look like they can see what I look like. And um, but you know, my experience has been is that people have been confused by just my physical appearance and not know how to identify, make assumptions about, you know, my identity, right? And then, of course, being a male in nursing, making assumptions about, you know, all these labels that we want to put on people in terms of, you know, sexual orientation and, and other things, right? And right. so those are very real experiences that I've had. I mean, in those spaces, right, of race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and you know, as I shared with you and the people who are listening to this, I do lead by identifying as white. You know, my mom is was a white European, you know, woman from Spain. I mean, I can't change that. That is part of who I am in terms of my race. The opportunity, though, that we have when we look at our white brothers and sisters, right, black brothers and sisters, brown brothers and sisters, you know, Asian brothers and sisters, all of our brothers and sisters on this earth, right? Right. Is to really just spend time with them in their space and learn who they are. Because just, after, you know, because I lead with being white, doesn't mean that I am the assumption that you might think that I am, right? My mom, you know, was a very um, accepting individual. She grew up as a toddler during the Spanish Civil War. Wow. And so she had some very, you know, profound experiences of poverty of um, indifference, right? Uh, because of the complexity of that time in the span, you know, in Spain's history. And so she brought that to me as her son. And so, um, yeah, the assumptions that people make of one another based on race, ethnicity, gender, the intonation in their voice, the way they express themselves, their mannerisms, right? May be true, but they may be false. And I guess you yeah. can't know that unless you have a conversation with them. And so my experiences have been, these experiences that we're talking about, have oftentimes been thrust upon me based on people's assumptions about what they see not based on anything real that I may right. have disclosed to them. And it's, is it, is it, I, I guess we could take the next step, right? So what does that mean, right? Well, I guess it means whatever you want it to mean, in my opinion. I mean, that's the way I've processed this based on the strength that I got from my mom, 
right? So like my mom, I remember my mom telling this story because she she had a really hard, it took her a really long time, probably not until she was in her older age to really understand why is race so important? Why does it matter that you're a Mexican? We would have these conversations and, you know, and she shares the story of, you know, working as a seamstress in the United States. You know, my mom had a sixth grade education, but she was at least, you know, blessed to have received some skills training on how to sew so that she could work. And sharing the story of being at work one day in the United States, in Yuma, Arizona, which for people who are on, listening to this on the West Coast probably know where Yuma, Arizona is. It borders up against Mexico and California. And a man coming in, I don't remember how exactly this came up, but he felt it was okay for, for him to say that my mother essentially, you know, so basically, you know, I don't want to use any derogatory terms. I want to be really positive about this, you know, but calling into question, you know, this idea that she she's a white woman with three Mexican sons. And yeah, having to deal with that. And and so I can only base the work on my experience largely, not solely, but largely, which is that I need to embrace everybody. And I have this thing that I'm trying to encourage in our school, right? Which is that I, I want to create create an environment where people can just be, just be. I don't want you to be male. I don't want you to be Iranian. I don't want you to be Mexican. I don't want you to be black. I don't want you to be anything. I just want you to be, right? Be your own genuine self. Just be, be comfortable or have the safe environment to be exactly. your genuine just self. Just be. That's it, yeah. right? We talk about belonging, right? Right. Well, if we want people to belong, then we should just let them be. And so thinking about that, I'm not saying that's the right approach. Just I've been thinking about that approach, right? Right. That if you can just be, does it matter? Of course it matters, right? Who we are, right? Underneath that person that we are. All of that right. matters. But if I can learn about all those different pieces or aspects of who you are by just being, I don't know. I just wonder what that would be like, right? Because I, I'm trust me, I'm not naive. I realize we don't necessarily live in a society where that's, you know, the way things happen. But I do wonder about that, right? As a person who, you know, taking us back to your original question, right? Who has had experiences based in race, ethnicity, and sexual orientation, that if I didn't have to be based on those based on those things right what would that experience be like i just right. wonder right can i just come as robert can ali just come as ali yeah i mean i mean for for from my perspective like it makes sense because so many times um we do label people and we try to put people in these boxes and i think it's more or less to make other people comfortable not necessarily to make the individual comfortable like, how do I need to be around? by their curiosity. Right. Right? Instead of just accepting the people. That's what it's always who they are. For me. It's always yeah. been to satisfy their curiosity. But I do wonder, you know, if I'm just being, 
and we're having lunch together, let's say, right? And we're both right. being, right? And I just say to Ali, I'm just like, hey, Ali, tell me about your family and where you, you know, how that, you know, like going back a few, you know, generations ago, what was, you know, where did they live and whatever, right? Like just having an open conversation about like just getting to know someone, right? Out of an appreciation of them. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's it, right? It's not just not trying that I'm trying to pry, right? Just like, I just want to know about Ali. Like, yeah, you know, we talk about this country being a melting pot, right? I call it more of a salad bowl, but (laughs) something like that, right? Yeah. And I wonder, okay, if that, if, if we embrace that idea, right? If we embrace that idea, right? Right. If one embraces that idea, then what does that mean? Do I never get to know Ali for anything other than him being a nurse and my colleague? Is that it? Right. Because that to me does that to me feels very superficial. Like you're, oh, it's only a layer of the onion that you get to peel. It's something. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's so not I- everything that makes people who they are. Right. So having the opportunity to actually do an appreciative inquiry, sort of say, uh, into into who they are, makes them who they are. And, and I think we appreciate, like, you know, our good friends, we tend to know a lot better and more about um, than others. So, yeah, I, I can appreciate that. I can appreciate it. So, um, definitely want to make sure... Uh, I, I'm I'm cognizant of the, how, how how long I'm keeping you. You can go, and, and, I, and I get you can go. I, I get to feel like you got enough. <laughs> uh, I, I get to no. I get to, I get to, I get to have these conversations with you all the, all the time. So I appreciate that. Um, uh, I want to give you the floor of anything else you want to share, uh, and if you want to, just one last question I can throw in there. Uh, what do we need to do from a from a uh, EDI perspective? Uh, as a profession or from an academic setting, what do we need to do to do a better job uh, to make nursing a more um, inclusive profession? That's a great question. You know, I, I think it's the central question, you know, what needs to be done, right? Because I think there are things that need to be done. Right. Uh, how we achieve uh, doing those things, I think, is going to take. Uh, it's going to take many different strategies, and it's going to depend on the context in terms of nursing education and nursing practice, and nursing professionalism. I think that <clears throat> certainly one area that we need to focus on, which seems like duh is the the representation of nurses in terms of how we're represent how we are comprised to meet the representative needs of people in this country um we have a lot of work to do there uh no doubt and that's the duh right the less duh is how do you do that and i i i think that one area that we're starting to focus on at the UCLA School of Nursing is, and this has been talked about, 
but I'm not sure how much it's actually being implemented across the country and uh, to what extent it is being validated, which is holistic admissions into our programs. I think that mm -hmm. that's something that uh, we need to have much more attention to and somehow be much more accountable for within the profession. Um, because we can say we're doing it, and I can tell you that UCLA is doing it, but we probably aren't doing it in a way that is uh, necessarily uh, leading to us achieving uh, the outcomes that we might be hoping for. And so that's one thing. Um, I think the other thing, as I was thinking about our time together this morning or today, is I can tell you that we haven't done it at UCLA. I, I, I have been thinking about this. I've only been in the job for 19 months and we may do this soon. Of course, it depends on the faculty and, and the community, but to what extent have individual schools done a deep dive, so to speak, about their own institutional discriminatory practices and biased environments? And have they at least made a statement about that? You know, we talk about men in nursing. And when you look at the data, the data basically shows a flat line. We've been very stagnant over the last decade in terms of the number of men enrolled in nursing schools, and graduating from nursing schools and in the profession. And what does that mean about our environments, right? True. And so I think that's another thing that I'm, I've been thinking about from the moment I got to UCLA. Um, but of course, there's always, there's many different things that need attention and not making excuses for the work that we're doing at UCLA. Uh, but in fact, I, my role as Associate Dean for EDI is 50% um, of my time. So, you know, there's there's all sorts of work that needs to be done. But I do think that schools of nursing, if they haven't done it, and colleges, if they haven't done it, need to have a document um, or some sort of report uh, that accounts for their own history. We have an interesting history at UCLA, you know, one in which, you know, uh, some of our first graduating classes um, actually were comprised of white and Asian students. It's not just a discovery or a telling of a story that is negative, but also the positive things in right. that that we may want to revisit. Right, like things that did, that happened that did diversify the, the population and contributed to that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that's on the student side of things. I think on the faculty side of things and the staff, because I don't want to leave staff out of this because our organizations do not exist uh, and function just with faculty and students. I think that on the faculty side of things, we one of the things that we're focused on at UCLA in the School of Nursing is um, trying to create a pipeline of PhD students from underrepresented groups. 
I think that's a lot of this work needs to be intentional. I think that for places like UCLA, I think that we're very attractive to all sorts of people and sometimes not so attractive to all sorts of people. We need to really think about how we set a tone in our, our school, at least, to be attractive to everybody and not detract, send messages that detract people from wanting to come to be with us. And in doing that, um, we not only provide a service to the discipline, but hopefully provide a service to ourselves and um, get people to think about being part of the academy beyond getting their PhD. And then when we think about our staff, I think one of the things that we need to be mindful of is because they oftentimes tend to be more representative of the people that we're, we, we're serving in the profession is that they are a critical part of everything that we do. And they're really our partners in ensuring that our students feel valued for who they are, whatever that is. And so I think that when the staff feel valued, it's easy for them, easier for them, right? To demonstrate that value through their actions and how they support our students. So yeah, we have to be working on all cylinders and it's, it's, it's challenging because at the end of the day, we're dealing with human beings at the individual level first and trying to create some type of synergy among many individuals. Well, thank you uh, very much. Anything else you wanna share before we sign off for the season? So I think in order, as we move forward in nursing, I think there's clear evidence of the need to support students on their journey. One of the areas that I think that we can enhance in the discipline of nursing is thinking about what are the right processes and structures in place to help students succeed, uh, all students. And, and sometimes that requires some intentional focus on student success and a closer attention to how we uh, are clear about what the expectations are of students. Because my experience has been across all programs from BS to PhD that not all students necessarily either get the same message or hear that message as clearly uh, either at the beginning of their program or at some point in their program. We have amazing people in, in all the institutions that I've been at. I've seen some amazing um, students come through uh, these programs. And at the same time, these amazing students, some of them often struggle greatly to succeed. Um, and, I, and I don't think it's because they um, are incapable. I think sometimes we just have not provided equitable support for our students. And sometimes that equity 
is not in terms of resources that cost the school something directly, but it's an investment in someone's time to ensure that that student is hearing the message clearly about what does it mean in terms of the time needed to be a successful baccalaureate student? What does it mean in terms of the time needed to be a successful PhD student? And really engaging them, not just in that conversation about, oh, you're gonna need to put a lot of time in, but so let's talk about what that means to you, right? Because for some students, it might be that they're taking care of, you know, they're the primary caregiver of a person at home that needs extra care, right? right. For others, it might mean that, you know, they're a single parent. I mean, there are many different things that sometimes we just don't know about our students unless we actually take time to learn more about them. Right. Very true. Very true. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for your time. I uh, greatly appreciate you sharing your uh, your journey with us. Um, we have been listening to Dr. Robert Lucero. Uh, he is an Associate Dean of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at the UCLA School of Nursing. Thank you very much. This has been a fantastic season covering uh, some incredible nurses uh, uh, with the focus on equity, diversity, and inclusion. Uh, and happy holidays. And we look, I look forward to bringing you another season of incredible uh, nurses in the profession uh, for you in season seven. Thank you very much and have a great holiday season. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Tayeb. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.